Um, all right, beloved, welcome. Good morning to you. Um, if you want to open to Daniel 9. Daniel 9. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll read the first ten verses. We'll try to look at the entire chapter, believe it or not, this morning. Light reading. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day gathering. We, we thank you for your abounding grace, your abundant love, and your mercy. Mercies which are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. May we glorify you this day, and may we be edified by way of your Holy Spirit and, and through this study and in worship this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments... We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Uh, we've been tracing um, the outline um, of the Bible's teaching on prayer. I'm um, seeing as we have thus far um, the Old Testament connections um, between prayer and covenant, between prayer and the gospel. Um, and, and that is um, how prayer responds to God's promises, um, promises that appear um, in different ways at, in different times um, through certain points of redemptive history, uh, but, but they're unfolding um, God's one sovereign plan. That is the one sovereign plan of the one true God. That's what we see unfolding. Uh, we followed uh, certain prayers in the Old Testament thus far, recognizing uh, that they share a common theme, and that is for Yahweh to, to honor his covenant promises. Uh, we've heard from Abraham. We've looked at a prayer of, of Jacob. We've um, listened to Moses, asking God to make good on his, on his sovereign purposes. And that is simply praying back to God his word. 
You know, it was Charles Spurgeon who said that prayer was like a homing pigeon. It begins in the heart of God. It's sent out and lands in the heart of God's people. And then the people then send it back to the heart of God. So God, he he moves his people in accordance to his will by way of the the content of the promises um, written in his word. It comes to them, from him, and then it's prayed back up to him again. That's that's the theme we see um, throughout the scriptures. Now, the the Puritans used to call that um, pleading the promises. You open the word, you read the word, you discover um, the promises of God in the word, and you pray it back to God. You pray according to his word. Now, we fast-forwarded then um, to the time of the judges, and we looked at the prayer of Hannah, and we, the lesson we learned there was that, that Hannah um, learned to read her life in accordance with the providence of God. We see that outlined in, in her prayer. Um, God's providence, um, you know, God sovereignly ordains all things. He ordains all events to happen. They happen and they're carried out providentially um, in, in time and space. So he sovereignly decrees it, and then in time and space, by way of providence, um, these things come to pass. Uh, we moved from Hannah to the um, exilic period, uh, when Daniel and, and several um, under other young men were selected to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Um, they were exiled to Babylon in 605 B.C., um, having been shown favor, um, surviving as he did, Daniel um, was also due to God's sovereign purposes. Time and time again, the sovereignty of God um, is made manifest in and through the life of Daniel during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and then during the reign of Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Medo-Persia knocks off Babylon and Daniel, here now, still captive um, un- under the, the rule of, of Darius. We learned last time about the plot that was formed against Daniel by the presidents, the satraps, the counselors, and governors of that kingdom um, who agreed that the king should establish an ordinance, um, enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god, small g, or any man uh, for 30 days, with the exception of Darius, that is bowing down, praying to him, um, shall be cast into the den of lions. Once Daniel heard about the injunction, he continued to do that which was his routine. And we're told here that he continued to pray three times a day, as was his custom. So the the fact that Daniel was a man of prayer um, is is actually stressed way back in chapter 2, almost 70 years prior to what we read here. And that was in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar when he encouraged his fellow young men um, to call upon the mercies of Almighty God. So this was his routine 
Um, Last week, we looked at Daniel 6, verse 10, which reads, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Now, those windows being opened um, toward Jerusalem, um, praying in that direction, is, is understood by, by reading 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 50, which we looked at briefly last week. And that is when Solomon prayed that prayer of dedication um, at the temple that, that he built. He prayed, Lord, if they sin, if your people sin, if they're carried away in judgment, if his people humble themselves and pray towards this land, towards this temple which at this time was in ruins. Lord, hear them. So this was his routine, praying toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, which was like 800 miles away. We read he prays in chapter 6. Now, the prayer that he prays that we read about in chapter 6 is recorded in chapter 9 and was prayed, this prayer in chapter 9 was prayed before he was thrown in the lion's den in chapter 6. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den in chapter 6, but but chronologically that happened after his prayer. Now, I already made mention of the fact that when you read Daniel... When you move from Daniel 6 to to chapter 7, the scene changes dramatically. It's very much like the book of Revelation, where the first 11 chapters focus on the war between the church and the world down here. And when you get to the second half of the Revelation, the the focus changes to that which is behind the battle. That is the cosmic war going on. It's kind of a lifting of the veil that takes you into the heavenlies. So this is the the revelation that is. That scene depicts the battle of the beasts, plural, that are shown and described Um, as the cosmic unseen battle that explains why all this down here is going on. Why is the church being attacked? And so on. The great dragon, Satan, his minions, the deceiver of the world. We read he's thrown down. He's thrown out of heaven. We read that in chapter 12. And knowing his time is short, the scripture says... He can no longer deceive the nations. He goes after in a furious rage to make war on her offspring. Where we read, that is, on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We read that in in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and, and 17. So the idea is this, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the scenario, it's the, the D-Day, V-Day scenario, World War II. The war was won on D-Day, 
The battles went on for what, 13 more months? Until V-Day, Victory in Europe Day? For an entire year, the battles went on. That's what's going on with the finished work of Christ. Christ, we read in Colossians, made a public spectacle of Satan in the demonic realm. Crushed Satan. The war was won at the first coming of Christ. The battles will continue on until the second coming. And so too, behind this biography of Daniel in the first six chapters, when we get to chapter 7 through 12, it's an account of what's behind the public ministry and challenges that Daniel faces. That's how Daniel's to be read. So that is the spiritual backdrop of a great spiritual work, a much larger work that God is in the process of carrying out. Does that make sense? That's why you can't read Revelation without reading and understanding Daniel or Exodus or Ezekiel, parts of Jeremiah and and, and Isaiah especially the apocalyptic language. You'll never understand, or you won't rightly understand it. So here then, we're getting a behind-the-scenes look. So what we read here in Daniel, also like the Revelation, is not chronological. You don't read Revelation chronologically because it's a series of visions. It's a series of pictures depicting What's going on in the heavenlies, if you will? So in in chapter 6, verse 10, Daniel prays. Chapter 9, from which we just read, is the prayer that he prayed. Okay? So Daniel 9, chronologically, occurs before Daniel, chapter 6, verses 14 and following, when he goes to the lion's den. For instance, if you would... Look at Daniel 5, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay, that's Darius. Takes the kingdom, chapter 6, and then it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and so on. Okay, look at chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel Daniel saw a dream. Okay, so he's going back. If you read it chronologically, you go, well, this guy's already dead. Okay, well, he's, he's bringing up something happened in the first year of Belshazzar. And then chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared. Okay, and that was the vision of the ram and the goat. That was in the third year of Belshazzar. Then to chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the Mede. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years, and so on. So here we see kings come and go, uh, but God's kingdom persists. 
Daniel is, we could say, the poster child of the durability of God's kingdom as a kingdom child. So the point of, Daniel's chap- of Daniel chapters um, 1 through 6 um, is not the prayerfulness of Daniel, but the sovereignty of God. That's the focus of chapters 1 through 6. Uh, the, the, the one they could call on, the one they could depend upon, both to protect his servants in exile and to keep his promises. Okay, so notice Daniel 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, he would have read, for instance, um, from Jeremiah 25, notice verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Also, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. So these promises are the driving force, if you will, behind Daniel's prayer. When God promises something in his word, those promises are to encourage believers. Daniel, you can imagine, would have found great encouragement reading from Jeremiah that the 70 years um, are about up. Then, verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So here we learn that true prayer recognizes who God is and who we are in relation to him. And notice the combination of prayer and confession. He humbly confesses to the covenant God of Israel And that he is to be feared. He is to be feared and he is to be trusted. So Daniel speaks on behalf of the entire exilic community. When he realizes Jeremiah's prophecy, he immediately begins to confess his sins and the sins of his people. Notice verse 5. We have sinned. And have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Just think about, I mean, just the the years of idolatry. 
the sin and idolatry, the faithlessness of the people. And here Daniel, whose habit it is to, to pray morning and evening, we'll see during the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, which weren't happening at this point, obviously. He maintained that habit. So he prays here, look, the fact that we're in exile, Lord, it's not your fault, it's our fault. (laughs) Amen? It's not because you're not a good and loving God, you are. But we're a sinful, wretched people. We rebelled against you. And he goes on to say, Lord, you were righteous, you sent us here, and you were right in punishing us. Do we pray like that when we're chasing? <laughs> Lord, thank you for chasing me. Maybe not in the midst of it, but certainly down the road when we look back. Although we, we ought to. Notice also that the scope of his prayer, his concern here is not only for Judah, but also for Israel. Remember the kingdom had been split, Remember? And they were crushed by the Assyrians 150 years earlier or so. And then in verses 9 to 15, Daniel appeals to God's mercy based upon his compassion. Not their deeds, but upon his compassion. Lord, we're not commendable, but you're compassionate. Notice. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, the curse and, uh, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God who have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Now, note that phrase. Bank that in your mind. Not anything has been done like what has been done against Jerusalem. Bank that in your mind for later. As it is written in the law of Moses, all the calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So he, he draws, obviously, uh, his language is drawn from um, Deuteronomy and uh, the prophets, and that is for Yahweh to bring blessings out of curse. To bring blessings out of curse. And then in verses 16 and 17, he lifts up a prayer in which he cries to the Lord about um, the desolate condition of the people, verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, 
because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. Catch that? Your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Notice, he, he pleads with the Lord to restore the kingdom to Israel, to build up the spiritual condition of his people. Notice, to make his face shine upon his sanctuary, which is desolate. And he appeals to those things, uh, um, and that is according to God's goodness. Beautiful, isn't it? He knows the scriptures, and he knows the nature of his God. He's just, loving, and compassionate. So his prayer is really focused on God's glory, isn't it? Lord, do what you promise because of your name. Lord, do what you promise because of your reputation. Because of who we are, or who you are, in spite of what we are. You, you ever pray that? I pray it all the time. Lord, in spite of me, please. <laughs> please. Because that's your city, Jerusalem. It's your temple. We belong to you. Answer these prayers according to your compassion. Not for us, but for you. Love it. And then in verses 20 and 21, we see the reality of God hearing our prayers. As Daniel prayed, God sent Gabriel. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, he's talking about the vision of chapter 8, verse 26, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So, God is telling us that he always hears our prayers. He immediately hears the prayers of his people. Even if his answer is delayed, beloved, even if his answer is delayed, he hears your plea immediately. Notice, he came, he, he came to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, he says that in passing. It had been decades since Daniel had been in Jerusalem for any evening offering. That was my point earlier. But his heart was still set by the morning and evening offerings. This is what we see in this man. You know, John Calvin comments on this. He said this, quote, Already 70 years had passed, during which Daniel had never observed any sacrifice offered, and yet he still mentioned sacrifices as if he were in the habit of attending daily in the temple, which was not really in existence, end quote. Here he is. And then verse 22, he made me understand. 
speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. The beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then the vision is 20 verses 24 to 27. 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, because our focus is prayer, and we're lacking time here, um, we're only going to be able to touch on this. 70 weeks are declared about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, it's sealed up naturally because our Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom all this stuff points. Okay? Daniel, where our mind is told to seal up the vision, by the time you get to Revelation, John's told not to seal up the vision. Amen? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat and in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolated. Amen? All right, you can all go home. Or you can all prepare for service. God sends Daniel or uh, Gabriel to, to answer Daniel and explain that, that he hasn't seen the whole picture. He doesn't have the whole picture in view yet. Yes, his people will return from exile, but the fullness of what God promised will not become reality until 70 weeks have passed. 70 weeks is a shorthand reference for 490 years. Pointing to the anointed one who will be cut off. Jesus. The Messiah. Seven is the number of completeness in Scripture. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, my brother sins against me. What, should I forgive him seven times? Jesus answered, I do not say to you seven times, but... 70 times 7. Now, most of you are familiar, unless you grew up as I did, covenantal theology and so on. You've been taught a dispensational view of this text. And dispensationalists, they, they, they delay the 70th week And they create um, what's known as a secret rapture. 
which was invented about a couple hundred years ago, 180 years ago or so. And they, they designate it um, as a seven-year great tribulation. So at 69 weeks, Christ comes, he's cut off, he dies, he ascends, and then there's this last week, if you will, that, that's pushed out, they delay it, and they say that, that right before the end, the church will be secretly raptured away, and then that last week is what's known as the Great Tribulation. You're all familiar with that for the most part? Okay. And then when they get to Revelation 4, and I say this because I want us to understand, um, I, I tried to adopt dispensationalism a number of years ago. When you get to Revelation 4, um, this is how they interpret that. It says, As I looked, behold, a door was standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking said to me like a trumpet, Come up here. And they'll say, Well, there's the rapture. We're taken away for that for that 70th week. Okay, so you have 70 weeks, verse 24. In verse 25, you have, notice, seven weeks, then 62 weeks. That equals 69 weeks. With week 70, um, they claim, I'm trying to um, educate you, not, not mocking this. I'm, I'm trying to educate you where this comes from, okay? They'll say, with week 70, they claim little horn of Daniel 8, verse 9, is Antichrist who, who will uh, hold sway, and then halfway through that, that final week, they teach that he persecutes God's people, persecutes them for three and a half years. Where do they get that? From Daniel 7.25, which reads, for a time, times, and half time. Okay? Lesson. If you were in the Revelation study, we did this, but again, a refresher. Okay, lesson. When we read time, time, and half times, when we read three and a half weeks, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, those are not, capital N-O-T, they are not chronological periods of time. They are synonymous literary variations of the same time period. It's not an amount of time, it's a kind of time. Tribulation means pressure, for instance. It's a quality of time, which is, we teach and we believe the Bible teaches, that that is the entire time between the two comings of Christ. The 70th week is the time from the baptism of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So that's the last week. And then you split that in half. Three and a half, the baptism of Christ to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, which we'll read in a second. Jesus said that's what Daniel was prophesying about. Are you with me? And then the second three and a half period is from 70 AD until the coming of Christ, where we read, and we read earlier in Revelation, that Satan knows his time is short, so he goes after the offspring of the woman. All those who love and obey the anointed one, Christ. Christ. 
after Christ's death and resurrection, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jesus said there's going to be great tribulation like the world has never seen during that time of 70 AD. He said this, Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of town. He said, when you see these things happening, run for the hills. And then he goes on in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, to talk about his second coming. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. There's coming a time where you'll see the signs run. That's 70 AD. And then he goes on to say, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Remember that passage I read from Daniel? See, when my dispensational brothers read that, they say, see, this has to be to the future because it says a time of trouble that has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. History records, Josephus, 1.1 million people were slaughtered in 70 AD. And 100,000 were taken into slavery. So many will insist that this tribulation cannot refer to 70 AD because worse events have happened. Auschwitz, put the world wars together, and all that. But again, this is hyperbole. The same language is used in Exodus 9, 10, 11, Ezekiel 5, 9, Joel 2. For instance, here's um, Exodus eleven six. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So it's important. This is just as important of a text than any other text, amen? So we have to be careful how we read it. So the 69 weeks or the 483 years between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem that we just read about and the cutting off of the anointed one correspond roughly to the time period between the Jews' return to Jerusalem um, under the Persian king Cyrus. And, and by the way, just as a footnote, many, there are many scholars who believe that Darius is a throne name for Cyrus. Many believe it's the same person. So you can go study that on your own. Okay, that's the Persian king Ezra I and the death of, of, of Jesus. That's the 69 weeks. Okay? The anointed one is cut off, whose death renders all sacrifices, including those offered on the day of atonement, done away with. Over. 
putting an end also to sin, atoning for iniquity, and bringing in everlasting righteousness. To put an end, this verse 24. An end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. It's all clear, right? You can join our, the men can can join our study on Thursday nights if you like. We'll go into this in more depth over the next year and a half or so. But anyway, that's where dispensational uh, rapture theory comes, is drawn from. Um, The Bible clearly teaches about a rapture, but as we read scripture, it corresponds to the second coming and the judgment of Jesus Christ. It all happens simultaneously. So that's what we um, teach here. Um, But here, the focus again, this prayer to close up. Um, uh, God heard his prayer and he sent Gabriel. Okay? Now, this is, what, this is a pretty um, <laughs> pivotal moment in, in, in redemptive history. And Daniel was used in a way that he was given much insight with all these visions and all uh, that correspond um, um, to the end, many days from now, as it's written, which is actually many hundreds of years from now. So again, as we read apocalyptic-style language, um, uh, most of it is, is, is um, hyperbole, it's... it's um, phrases that we read over and over again, again, uh, once again in the Old Testament. But every time we pray, every time we pray in Jesus' name, that is to pray on the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to realize that, that God doesn't simply send an angel to, to assure us of our great love for him. We're reminded, praying in Jesus' name, that he did more than that. He sent his son to make atonement for our sins and to declare us as righteous. Amen? All of this points forward to that. He sent not an angel, but the very pledge of his love is Lord Jesus Christ. So we have direct access to the throne of grace. We can pray directly to the Father because of the intermediary work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He stands now and mediates, that is, he represents us before the Father. Therefore, we have direct access to the throne through his finished work. Amen? Amen.